Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. I need everyone to close your eyes, cross your legs, touch your fingertips together like you're meditating, holding a small bowl of water that each time that it ripples, you're throwing yourself off center. And I need you to open up your third eye and travel back to the early years of the 2000s. A whole lot was going on in the 2000s. Uh, One of the most notable things was uh, 9-11, which ruined literally everybody's lives globally. But we aren't thinking about that right now. I want you to go back to when you were a kid. Uh, Before social media took off, before you damaged your brain on purpose to make yourself a better poster. And remember what it was like to get excited for movies that were coming out in movie theaters. Now I've noticed that a lot of families tend to uh, have like a franchise that they would circle around. Mine, before the Harry Potter series, which I didn't really ever get into, my mom was very, very into it. My dad just kind of was like a passive observer of it. But our family's kind of like franchise we rallied around was Indiana Jones, and I'll forever hold that close to my heart. There are other franchises that people really do, you know, cherish. Uh, Some of the easiest ones, uh, Harry Potter. Uh, Lord of the Rings, which does play into what I'm going to be talking about today. And uh, if you're a a hot girl on Twitter, Twilight, about every five months to talk about how Edward was an abuser. Which, while true, is a very well-trodden point, and you could probably pull more stuff out of that than Edward low-key was a gaslighter for real. (laughs) But there is a franchise I really want to talk about, and it's Lord of the Rings. So... I will never do a Lord of the Rings episode on this podcast. Uh, It's too well-trodden, and there's nothing interesting I could ever even think about saying about it. But the cultural impact of Lord of the Rings is probably something that I'm going to go into at some point in my life, just not right now. Uh, Lord of the Rings as a staple, as a mile marker of uh, when movies were at their most popular... Uh, movie ticket number sales spiked in the year is either 2001 or 2002, and it's whichever one came out when The Fellowship of the Ring came out. Did that directly cause the uh, number of tickets to skyrocket? Who knows? There's a chance that it did. It was probably a culmination of a whole bunch of things. It could have just been the turn of the new millennium, and we were all really excited to spend our money. But as the boomer exodus from city centers to the suburbs grew... So did their wants of replicating everything that happened in the cities that they were in. And with that came things like home theater systems, which slowly replaced movie theaters entirely. And then by the time that we tried to reconcile and make movie theaters exciting, again, uh, LimeWire, FrostWire, and the Pirate Bay had taken over. And now we're in kind of like this weird twilight zone of, do you have a Plex server you go to? Oh, you don't? 
So you're one of those people. So, I mean, that's... That's kind of that's kind of where we're at. So, Lord of the Rings to me is it's it's kind of like the last hurrah of movie theaters being as dominant as they were. Now, why am I bringing up Lord of the Rings? Well, I mean, you've already seen the title of this movie or po- podcast episode. I mean, the movie that we're doing. So, it's important to uh, really lay the groundwork for the fact that Lord of the Rings accidentally robbed us of uh, a film. F- I don't want to call it a franchise, a film series that we all probably would have loved with our entire hearts. And I'm, of course, talking about Master and Commander. What does Lord of the Rings have to do with this? Well, when The Fellowship of the Ring came out, it was a massive cultural event that, at the Oscars, it got, if I remember right, zero recognition whatsoever. This was a massive box office hit. This was something that was talked about constantly. But, because they were these giant blockbuster movies, why the fuck would the Oscar committee give a shit about this? And then the same thing happened with Lord of the Rings and the Twin Towers. Which, that that was a very similar um, situation. Where the backstory behind Lord of the Rings started uh, kind of taking over the general... Um, like, the ethos of the project, where it was like, wow, they really were in pre-filming for, like, a year and a half or two years, or however long it is, and Orlando Bloom really did become, like, an incredible archer just to play this role. And the fact that they filmed all three back-to-back-to-back gave it a type of, uh, group cohesion that, uh, it's, it, it makes the trilogy feel extremely well-planned and well-fleshed out, which is exactly what it was. So Lord of the Rings and the and the Twin Towers uh, comes out, you know, gets uh, similar praise. And then the Return of the King comes out, and that's when the Academy kind of realized that this really is an incredible accomplishment. And if I remember right, the Return of the King won every single Oscar it was nominated for, including Best Picture. Now, was this the Academy saying sorry to Peter Jackson and company for not applauding the Fellowship of the Ring and the Twin Towers when it rightfully deserves so? Maybe. I mean, Return of the King still is a really good movie, but the film that it was going up against was Master and Commander. If I remember right, Master and Commander didn't win any Oscars. I'm actually going to look that up right now. Oh, it did, actually. It won the two things, or two of the three that I would say it applied to that year. Best Sound Editing and Best Cinematography. Rightfully so for both of those. However, it did lose Best Picture to Return of the King, which won literally everything. So, did Master and Commander get a massively positive critical reception? Absolutely. In fact, in the the box offices, it uh, managed to nab $25 million domestically, and um, it dropped to fourth in its second weekend and sixth in its third and managed to finish a domestic run with almost 94 million dollars in pocket Uh, globally this film pulled in 212 million dollars and this ended up being a problem uh, in general which I mean like these are mind-blowing numbers this is so much money but it air quotes only pulled in 212 million dollars off of its 150 million dollar budget a thing that we just d- don't even hear of. This the film budget was one of, like, the highest ever for a film at this point, and um, managed to pull in a pretty nice profit margin. It profited 150%, but 
but that wasn't enough for the big Hollywood uh, folks who uh, largely uh, view like Academy Awards as being, you know, the end-all be-all. And Lord of the Rings, in a way, absolutely killed what would have been a truly exciting series because the film, while it is like a very funny, charming film, it's not outright almost like a comedy, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies would uh, later go on to be known as. You know, it's, it's a film that teeters on being incredibly serious about the brutality and the horrors of war, all while maintaining a certain charm that we usually see with fiction that deals with naval battles and, you know, men out at sea. You know, jaunty little sailor tunes and fun little one-liners that are, you know, things like the lesser of two weevils. It's it's all good fun, but it's largely a backdrop to the big argument that they put out in this movie, which is like, the war's pointless and a whole lot of people you love will die because of it. And that's the, the, the I've, I've just been like watching through Lord of the Rings and I've really been enjoying myself on the rewatch. And all it made me think of was the movie that we accidentally got robbed of, which would have been Master and Commander, The Indian Ocean, where they take on the, uh, the, the Dutch East India Company. Was that what that company was called? I can't remember anything I learned in school anymore. This is Master and Commander. An act of war will cripple them. With basic repairs, we can get home as we are. We're not going home. The power of nature will threaten them. Our enemy has more than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers. And we are supposed to stop He must face the invincible. He fights like you, Jack. A hunter becomes the hunted. The movie opens up on a frame that will get you the most traction you'll ever see on a Twitter post that you'll ever make, which simply says, April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands between him, or before him. Oceans are now battlefields. Then we get our stakes, which are which is just like a simple quote that flashes across the screen that says, "Intercept French privateer Acheron en route to Pacific, intent on carrying the war into those waters. Sink, burn, or take her a prize." And I love this. And like, hear me out. I know I've said it before, but uh, movies exist now like right in the middle of the third act. Like all the action that we used to build up to is just told to us and then it's an explosion. And it's a lot to take in. And without that build up, everything feels useless. Like you, you just forget it after the credits roll. Like if given the option to bust after 10 minutes of solid... Wait, what's that? We, we, can't, we can't be talking about jacking off on the, on the puck. Why not? These movies just, uh, they just, like, kind of throw you into a mess and hope that the mess sorts itself out. This is especially apparent in New Age blockbuster movies, where people, for some reason, view ticket sales as getting your money's worth out of a movie. So you're expected to return this insane product that has no real direction to it. Like, every three minutes there has to be a... Ah moment, followed by an aww moment, which has to be capped off with a ooh moment, in that order. Movies like Master and Commander start off right where they should. 
It's not a Tarkovsky movie, so you won't have a comprehensive history of shipbuilding for three hours before we learn that the ocean can hold the boat. We're steered into what I like to call the zone. The zone is, without exaggerating, good. It's real good. And movies that take you to the zone sometimes need a little, little kick, a little pick-me-up. But all is good when you're here with me in the zone. This movie feeds you the only two bits of information you need. Napoleon is fucking his way through Europe, and the British are the only people who can sink his plowship before it docks and lets him... I'd Why'd I write so many sex things? Is this getting too sexual? We're immediately transported inside of a real-ass ship, where real-ass dudes are sleeping in hammocks. And this isn't just like a cool visual trick to just do or like a reference to anything. Things really were like this. And uh, like, like one of the greatest, if not the greatest, propaganda film of all time showcased this exact thing in my favorite shot of the entire movie in Battleship Potemkin. Whole bunch of fellas crammed into very tiny quarters with hammocks that they sleep in because the ship rocks and you don't want to roll out of bed. You'll hit your head to everything go dark for a while. The scene feels awful. Uh, nothing here feels like the glory of the sea. It looks wretched. There's no blue skies. It's all the fog of war, if you could even call it that. Everything looks dirty. Animals are pissing and shitting everywhere you can see. And the valor of a hard-fought battle is felt by... literally no one who actually has to do the fighting and wades in the literal shit. All the working men look miserable. And in contrast, we do see the wealth disparity as obvious as it is and was in the early 1800s. Because remember, this was the early 1800s, and we hadn't just let the wealthy integrate into working society by letting them wear zip-up hoodies and ball caps. Probably one of the bigger mistakes we've made in post-Reagan's America, honestly, now that I think about it. The wealthy folks all look like pirates in a porno, and the working men look like most of the people in St. Augustine, Florida. Shout out to the six people from Florida who listen to the podcast. Love you guys. We're in this together. COVID epicenter of the world. Let's go, baby. Florida. Florida. <coughs> we get our first big call to arms, and it's where we see our main man, the master. Or the commander. I can't remember which one he plays. Russell Crowe in what is probably his best acting performance. There are character actors. Think like your Daniel Day-Lewis's. And then there's just actors. You know, think your Morgan Freeman's. But then there's Master and Commander's Russell Crowe, who is, without exaggeration, completely convinced that he's a ship captain. And it shows. It adds an incredible depth to this character that you don't get in big-budget action movies anymore. Post like, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean? There's this weird detached irony now in action movies where main characters and actors are very aware that their sci-fi adventure is ridiculous. Think about your new Star Wars movies, or like uh, any ragtag ensemble cast movie since the financial crash of 2008. It's annoying, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So when I see this movie, completely unaffected by any of that, with Russell Crowe fully convinced that he's the captain of a ship, it feels so good to watch. 
It's made the rewatchability of this movie really, really high. Well, that, and the fact that it looks like they really blew up a ship when the French attacks them. This cannonball barrage scene is unbelievable. It's a technical feat, and I'm genuinely blown away that a movie from, like, 2004 was able to do what it did so well. The Asheron, the very ship that they've been chasing, emerges from the fog of war and lays siege to this unsuspecting crew. Well, like, slightly unsuspecting crew. One guy saw the sail. And the chaos of this barrage does not feel like it's celebrating war even in the slightest. And that's a big problem with movies post 9-11, I think. Like, war has to be rewarding, because we all can't be dying for no reason, right guys? So seeing films where there's no glory in the battles feels strangely refreshing to watch. Like, this looks like pure hell. It's an awful scene. The wood splintering, shredding the faces of very young sailors. Like, these guys had to have been teenagers. Cannons being slammed by cannonballs. An unending volley leaving dozens hurt. It's so fucking good. Like, this whole scene makes all this feel miserable. Like, I don't, it's, it's like you're prey and you're being hunted by a much bigger animal who knows exactly where you are. There's no pride in overcoming this. And man, what refusing to do CGI and just actually exploding a ship will do for you. It's really, really good. We should be blowing up ships more is what I'm getting into. 18 pounders. Eight, sir. We're gonna have to get closer to Pokey's eye. Run out the starboard battery. Aye, sir. Mr. Allen, come up on the wind. On the wind, sir. Lay me alongside a pistol shot. Sharpshooters to the tops, Mr. Howard. Aye, sir. Sergeant, take your section into the main top. Stand tall on the quarterdeck, son, all of us. Mr. Boyle, run up the colors. Aye, sir. Midshipsies, sir! The other endearing part of this film that I love are these jaunty one-liners that feel like they're right out of a pulp-sailing fiction novel. Things like when our boy Russ is below deck and says, They had the weather advantage, but we had the weather gods. There was something like that. This movie's full of these lines, and they aren't played for laughs at all. It's just a guy unable to process mass death and likes to tell jokes in order to cut through the pressure in the room. And yes, I will bring up each of these. Like, how do you not fall in love with this character when you hear him talk about how beautiful he thinks the boat is? It's great. It's so refreshing to see this be told this way, and not like, I'm sorry, did you say she's not a dime? Like, you know, like, like really extremely millennial dialogue. I said no cannons. And what did we see? And you know, like the sidekick goes, cannons? Yes, cannons. And I thought it was very, I thought it was very clear about no cannons. You know my cannon policy. It points over to the wall and it says no cannons. And then underneath it, it says, uh, for real. <laughs> I feel like I just willed it into the universe. The brutality of war continues through this movie with this brutal, slow montage of surgery in the 1800s. Quietly amputating body parts and cracking skulls open, all with the wettest sound effects that money can buy. 
Like, if this movie has any faults, it's that the sound design is a bit too accurate. I mean, the melon baller to the skull? Like, my god. But you don't have to fathom this for too long before we get a scene purely to get you in the right mind for a change in tone that the story's about to take. It's simple. It's old Russ and the Doctor playing violin and the cello, solely to flaunt the history of the film, just to give the period piece a heartier body. And this carries us into the ship diagram piece, which is fine, and then a bartering scene, which felt very accurate. Like a local island nation riding their little rowboats up to the bow of the ship to offer goods through bartering. It's nice to see this, because it isn't played like the, ooh, the savage natives want British steel. It's just ecstasy at seeing something that wasn't a cannonball coming at you. Now also, it's the first scene in this movie that could be considered vibrantly colored? Is that by intention? Did they forget to color grade it? Who care, in my personal opinion, because it's time for Russell Crowe to go on a hot streak of just being a dad talking about the times that he was in a boat. Every drunk dad has done this. I mean, it's usually about like, I don't know, what do dads talk about? Mine talks about Indiana Jones a lot. I'm sorry, I'm priming this up for the greatest line in the entire movie. There are two weevils in, in the scene, you know, this is the him doing his big spiel at the table. There's two evils, and um, they're fighting on a plate, or something like that, and he's forcing the doctor to pick which one he thinks is the best fighter. He picks, just to drill him with the line, Significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. You're completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two evils? <laughs> This line here, this right here, is what sold me on this being the greatest best picture snub in modern film history. An unbelievable movie that finally is getting the praise that it deserves. Not through the podcast, but through this uh, weird renaissance that it seems to be in. This movie's got everything. Dad jokes. A boat. A, a gun. Cannons are guns, right? And group singing, which Lord of the Rings would go on to become synonymous with, even though this movie was also in contention for best picture. Remember just a few seconds ago when I was talking about how little the movie glorifies war? Well, that never lets up the entire movie. That's one thing I really, really hate in modern American cinema. It's that the glory and redemption of war you know, movies that are blood sport centric, but uh, on ideological grounds, if that makes sense, it's a nightmare, honestly. And this movie, just one guy dies in the next scene. In the entire time, we see old Russ dealing with the guilt of someone dying. Just one person. Before, like, nine people died, I think. But here, just one person dies, and in his mind, he feels like he murdered him. I mean, the whole time. He's constantly having to remind himself that the enemy was what killed him. And he, in the grand scheme, was innocent. But he's not. And he knows this. And this is the type of stuff that gets largely missed in war cinema. 
We usually get one of two types of war movies. And yes, this includes American anti-war movies too. Which is the talented soldier who saves the day, or the talented leader who savings are the dayest. Uh, this movie turns that on its head and shows what should exist, and which largely doesn't exist, which is a commander being like, fuck, I just killed, like, someone's child, didn't I? That type of guilt, that type of remorse, isn't just misery porn. Like some anti-war movies that revel in it and miss the mark. And some nail it. I'm looking at you, come and see. But this film is so weirdly human. Because the war movies that we're used to are stuffed with robots and seeing just like a moderately normal person who likes singing and camaraderie take on the responsibility of someone needlessly dying is good fucking filmmaking. It's good. I really am bummed that I this missed out on Best Picture. Have I mentioned that yet? The consequences of his actions are constantly surrounding him, which I think is a really nice touch. There's the obvious elements, you know, like your splintered wood of the captain's quarters and ruined toilet played to comedic effect, but they really make it a point to show that this child from the beginning of the movie, who got his arm so hurt that he needed to have it amputated, is there. He's always there. So yes, the point of the character is to show heart by the captains. The poor child lost his arm and now he gets to do a white-collar job. But it's there. And this incredibly pervasive guilt that is constantly plaguing him is in every single scene. He isn't the invincible captain that we're used to. He's a man who has pressure building on him, and he's processing through it better than any of us could, but still, it's... it's visible. It's very much there. You killed a child, Russell. Look at what you've done, Russell. Branching away from guilt for a bit, uh, they play to something that doesn't really exist anymore, which is the ability to discover new lands. This is what you used to be able to do. Discover a new type of iguana, or bird, or monkey that's too human for you to be comfortable looking at. They make it a point to say, you, Doctor, will be the first naturalist to ever set foot on this island. And honestly, they're probably right, at least in like a Western Imperial sense. This is completely and totally unnecessary to the plot too, by the way. Like the excitement of discovering new flora and fauna is there solely to steep the scene in period-appropriate regalia. I'm a hooting ape for this type of stuff, in my period piece films. Using a film budget to just film big lizards and be like, damn, learning stuff is cool, is great. It's purely done for spectacle. Like they are in the, uh, uh, what, I, I forget, was it the Galapagos Islands? And them not letting the doctor walk through the island, functionally says, I think this is a very funny argument that the movie accidentally makes, but I'm choosing to believe this one, that they prolong the discoveries of Charles Darwin by doing exactly this. And I love that. Like, th th that's ultimately what it is, right? I mean, like, Charles Darwin went to the Galapagos and started walking around looking at looking at turtles and saying, oh, that's that's the origin of the species right there, buddy. Um, uh, that's... Look at those turtles and those birds with their curved beaks. But this movie, like, almost draws, like, parallels to that. And I think, though, that's just good, fun, dumb filmmaking. And it, it's what makes the replayability of this movie so nice. I mean, like, 
the set dressing of just like an island that you're just discovering all these new species on and like the the I don't know like the highs of knowing that you're the first person who's ever seen a lot of these here is incredible it's a lot of fun and you know this is ultimately a war movie and there's a reason why I'm bringing up both like appreciating nature and war because uh, the juxtaposition done with this type of storytelling is phenomenal and I need you guys to remember how I had you meditate at the beginning well you're gonna be doing it again with me let's go big brain mode so everybody cross your legs again touch your fingertips way harder together um, instead of holding like a small little thing of water I want you to physically crack every single knuckle in your hand and your wrist and don't stop there. Let it travel up the bones until your arms have become a fine powder. Let's get real annoying. This scene, from the argument with the doctor, to the beetle, to the cannon speed run, any percent, no glitch run, these are the two elements of being human. And these scenes, to me, are showcasing the internal struggle we face as humans, and specifically humans in the early 1800s were facing, as imperialism was becoming the new normal. Is there anything more human than finding a cool bug and being like, nice, nice, then immediately turning around and firing 1200 megatons of bombs because you want to fight the French? This is the human condition. Discovery versus violence is ultimately the core of this movie. It's like that uh, wolf meme. Like inside you there's two wolves. One likes caterpillars. The other one wants to harness the full destructive power of a British naval warship. The one you feed is how epic you are today. This tumultuous relationship lives through this scene. Through the guy who didn't salute a guy hard enough, so he got whipped all the way through to the Doctor and Ol' Russ arguing about what is human nature. Is the point of man to have an authority that they submit to? Or is nature truly the all-prevailing force? It's wild what uh, does and does not exist when the power element has been removed and it's just you talking to someone who emotionally you view as an equal. Uh, these punches hurt more when it's respect that you're missing out on. Am I right, 1800 society? Up top. But really, that's, that's what the scene is. It's somebody arguing that authority is the all-governing power, but when he invites in the doctor into his room, he says that I invited you in as a friend. So what he's done is he's removed all authority, and then all of a sudden he doesn't have the power that he's used to wielding. So what is the human element? Is Why would you surrender your authority if that's truly that human? Because to me, we, we, we made a big mistake doing computers and shit, doing podcasts, doing playing with electrical stuff instead of just kind of like rowing around in a boat and showing everybody the cool beetle that we just found. There's no real reason for us to be doing all this, is there? This movie becomes something entirely different when a guy, a weird poindexter type guy, refuses to be mean and makes a guy get whipped. I thought it was really cool how they deemed him a Jonah, mostly because every single time he's on watch, the Asheron shows up. And this is wild because he views himself as literally being cursed, and so does the entire crew of the ship. And it's wild how being stuck in a wooden prison leads to cohesive thought being completely and totally accepted by everyone, including the man affected by it. It's so effective, actually, that he kills himself. It was literally so much to handle that he literally kills himself because of it. 
Maybe the nature of man isn't a uh, war in a hostile environment. Who knows? I've got a desk job. I'm not really the best guy to ask about what is what is and isn't being a man. <laughs> I turn computers on and off all day for a living. What do you want from me? Turns out it very much is war. As in the next scene, the naturalist, our doctor, the only guy who's been certified a uh, right-ass dude this whole time, is chasing an albatross and is promptly shot by a British redcoat trying to kill the bird because he fucking felt like it. That's human nature when you really think about it. Just how cool is this animal? I'm going to kill it because wouldn't that be cool? To be the guy who got to kill it? Wow, look at me. The guy... The guy who... The... Look, look, look at my... I'm, 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 I've got a red coat and I've got a gun. I'm, I'm the guy who... Have I made my point yet? I want to say, kind of accurate that every, uh, everyone's favorite character of this movie is practically killed by a guy who starred in Lord of the Rings. Pippin's right there, almost grinning. It's like he knew what the Lord of the Rings was about to do. He fucking knew. One thing that isn't talked about enough in this movie is how clever the shot blocking is. Like the telescope to the eyeball zoom, uh, it's just wonderful stuff. All the way to the surgery scene, where we're an omniscient observer behind the doctor, who's performing surgery on himself, based off of the reflection from a mirror placed in front of him. It's stunning, fun filmmaking. There's absolutely no reason for this scene to play out like this, but because it does, the film stayed in the collective consciousness because of it. It's truly incredible filmmaking. It's... Man, we got robbed. Remember when I said that war was the human condition? Well, I lied. It's cool looking at cool animals uh, and drawing them. There's a whole montage of the Doctor surviving and just marching around the island with a walking stick. Just kind of marveling at the Galapagos tortoises, which literally is the dream. If I had to be reincarnated as an animal... I'd want to be a Galapagos tortoise. They have massive benefits to being them. Like one, you live like forever. Two, you're not really a prey to anything around you and you don't have to be a predator. You just kind of eat berries and leaves. Three, you're protected by the world. It's literally a felony to hunt you because of the origin of the species, if I remember right. And four, you get to look at cool birds all day long. It's literally the ideal life. And these guys get to walk up to them and just feed them plants. Like, how nice is that? There comes a clever filmmaking here, too, with the beetle. We established them earlier, when he wasn't allowed to go to the island for an expedition, and the camera pulls from this beetle to pull focus on the French ship slowly making its way through the Galapagos. It's really fun filmmaking. I also love the bit here where instead of bringing the spoils of the adventure, they choose to free them all before getting back on the ship. Granted, it was to survive, but ultimately, it upends history. Since when did the British in the 1800s choose not to take shit that they just kind of found? I knew this movie was a work of fiction. I know I've been talking about clever filmmaking a lot, but this film is packed to the brim with it. One of my favorite bits of it all is in the, uh, the 1800s equivalent of the suit-up montage. A uh, hot fuzz satired it better than any movie I've ever seen, but this here is the equivalent to that. Guns take what? Three minutes to pack a marble into? So you can't do that. So instead they show you the ye olden warriors suited up. 
And this is done through, like, hammering cannonballs into spheres. A thing I didn't even know existed. I forgot that they have to be made like that. Same with swords. Like, oh yeah, they don't always stay sharp, do they? Old Russ gives a banger speech after this, basically saying, we're fucked, we'll all die, but there is a chance because our ship looks like it's on fire. And honestly, respect. If I was an old-timey guy, I'd always pretend I was hurt before coughing the plague on someone or however you solved bar fights. And you know what? I can't riff on this. I'm just cutting it in, if I find it. Just listen to this, it's an all-timer. If I found it. Maybe Russell Crowe is a good actor. And the evidence is here. If I found the speech. <laughs> the Acheron is a tough nut to crack. More than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers. And they will sell their lives dearly. They mean to take us as a prize. <laughs> and we are worth more to them undamaged. Their greed will be their downfall. So it's every hand to his rope or gun, quicks the word and sharps the action. After all, Surprise is on our side. <laughs> this kicks off the climax of the movie, the thing we've been building up to. And this shit's unbelievable. A montage of bombs and smoke and hellfire. It's incredibly brutal in its destruction. And it isn't just firebombs, which uh, is normal in modern action movies. It's splintering wood and maimed bodies. This movie's so unapologetic in its brutality. Like the horrors of war, nothing to be celebrated here. Everything from dirty war tactics to familiar faces constantly dying after two hours of us learning to love them. It's unbelievable. And in all honesty, this probably could have been a series. But it remaining exactly this, a moment in time that treats war like something that should be avoided at all costs, is something worth celebrating. It is one of the great naval movies of all time, and it deserves every bit of praise that it's received in its odd renaissance, thanks to Twitter.com user Slippery Jim. I could, uh, recap the battle, but that would be boring. Just know that it was no different than a college football crowd leaving, like, I don't know, Michigan versus Ohio State? Like, yeah, 300 people got stabbed, but it's a cross-state rivalry, so... The thing that I love the most about this film is that there's no glory in war here. The British won. You should be celebrating. But the battle itself is not the primary focus. It's the mass death. Even down to the French commander, the enemy. No one is celebrating. War is hell. And they're incredibly honest about it. And honestly, this is probably why the movie didn't take off as much as it deserved. We were in the heat of 9-11, the Iraq War, we'd invaded Afghanistan, and the film that said, maybe we shouldn't be celebrating mass death of our enemies, didn't catch on like wildfire at the onset. 9-11 probably is the ultimate reason this film never took off, isn't it? Like, we were completely submerged in bloodlust, and this movie humanized enemies. The American population didn't want this at all. They wanted to see their enemies vanquished because their favorite radio show personalities told us so. Let's fucking go, baby. Freedom Fries 2021. The French lose again. And this movie fades out to the credits in the only way that it should. Which is the Doctor and old Russ playing their instruments as they set off to sea. And that's Master and Commander. 
I don't want to say anything else. Other than... I really hope I get back on schedule with this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to start a GoFundMe for Mastering Commander 2 that gets $500 million. And what they really do is they actually attack the city of Corsica. And um, what they do is they rain cannonballs down on a whole bunch of people. And the people are actually in the homes. But we tell them beforehand, so it's more of a decision. They just got to sign a waiver. And furthermore, 